0: Hello everybody and Kia Ora. So today uh, we will focus on section six uh, of the guide to road design um, and we'll provide an overview of the process to design the installation of a safety barrier. Uh, We have almost 900 uh, people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Ostroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with one of our presenters, uh, Richard Fanning, who will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. This project uh, was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A bit of housekeeping. Um, So our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Uh, The guide report and the slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, um, include the number of that slide in your message uh, to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, uh, let us know if you um, have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session via your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when uh, the recording is available on our website. And if you listen to podcasts, you can also find those shorts in your podcast app. So our presenters and agenda for today, uh, we will first hear from Richard Fanning. Uh, principal engineer, road design and traffic from the Department of Transport Victoria. Richard will introduce the project uh, and the team who worked on it. Then Professor Rod Troutbeck from Troutbeck and Associates will take us through the background and design philosophy and four stages um, of the design process. So welcome Richard and Rod and uh, over to you Richard.
1: Thanks, Karen. Karen, as um, well at the start of this this webinar, this webinar expands on
2: the webinar held, held last week that many of you would have attended. Um, session provides an overview of the design process in the guide for primarily barrier systems on roadsides. Slide on your screen now indicates the members of the Australian Road Design Task Force, uh, the projects being delivered by that task force, and uh, with, with a very important contribution to, from the um, Australized Safety Barrier Assessment Panel. The guide update was delivered by Professor Rod Tratbeck with contributions from jurisdiction representatives and
1: aspect members. Next slide. As um, per last week, this shows the overall structure of the guide to road
2: design and the part that part six plays in, in that overall structure. Um, just briefly, it's really important to note that the design of a roadside including barriers should be integrated with the overall road design process not as an afterthought when designers is approaching completion as an example decisions made during geometric design can and usually does impact on the design of the barrier system and conversely design of the barrier system can identify opportunities to refine geometric design a really common example was that Ideally some thought regarding site distance availability at access locations is easier to deal with at a relatively early stage in the design process rather than after the barrier has been installed. So again, it's important that part six is is read in conjunction with the broader guide to road design.
1: The current project um, revised section four onwards of the guide um this
2: particular webinar concentrates on the design barrier pros- pros- and the design process for the barrier system um in the guide and incorporates a four stage process with 16 steps one um, reason for that it became apparent during the guide review and update that there are varying levels of understanding and views on barrier design practices within jurisdictions and across jurisdictions
1: the update attempts to be clear on what good design practice is and at what stage various risks should be addressed. Another really important part to highlight rather than starting a design process,
2: it's it's really important to know whether there is a, a strategy that's been established for the treatment of the road sites for a particular corridor across a network. Um, and again, like any design process, it's it's really important that that all background information that informs a design solution around the context and design controls is established as early as possible through that process. A Couple of examples from a safety barrier perspective, a jurisdiction might have a strategy for a corridor that influences the outcome for the design standard for upgrades along that corridor. An example is a decision to adopt a continuous barrier system on a corridor the default solution for most dual carriage-based solutions is a continuous safety barrier solution so the design tasks reflect that decision on other roads a strategy may exist to provide a targeted barrier system based on an assessment of roadside risk the methodology in, methodology in sections one to three of part six provides a means of establishing an intervention level which can be used to inform where mitigation is required in this scenario, there's an increasing, increasing, increased emphasis on designing the commencement and termination of safety barrier links. And again, the basis of many of the major changes in, in, the, in, the, in the guide can be found in the, in the research report referred to in the slide. And it's handing, out, handing you over to now to Professor Tradbeck, who'll take you through the 16-stage design process in Guide to Road Design, part six.
3: Thanks Richard, and good afternoon. I'm going to talk about the process to design a safety barrier installation. While the process is similar to the one described in the previous edition to part six, there are some differences. Before you start designing an installation, you should be provided with a risk assessment to demonstrate that a safety barrier is required. Here we assume that a risk assessment of the section of the road that has been undertaken. The calculated risk was greater than the network roadside risk intervention threshold. What a mouthful that is, but best called near it. From this analysis, it was determined that a treatment is required and that a safety barrier is the appropriate treatment. The risk assessment process is discussed in sections one to three in part six, and as described by, by Richard,
1: is not the subject of this webinar. Now for the insulation design. Safety barriers are an integral part of the road, of the road infrastructure
3: and paramount to providing a safe road system. Safety barriers are not to be considered to be an afterthought. Safety barriers must operate effectively and provide the form, performance required. Safety barriers should be considered when planning a road. The installation design process consists of four major stages, defining the context, preliminary design, detailed design, and documentation. 16 steps are used in these four stages as shown in figure 6.1 of part 6. This is a cut down of that figure. Generally, each step is undertaken sequentially, although there are a number of questions to be answered, which affects the decision path. These are discussed later. The first stage is to define the context. This slide shows part of 6.1 in the guide and outlines the process to define the context. We will now discuss each step. The first step is to collect information. For, For this step, network and site information is required before convention design of the safety barrier installation. The network information centres around the required containment level for bridges along the route or corridor. This is an attribute of the road and should be developed in the planning stages. It's also important to understand that the containment level will be higher at high-risk sites. The definition of containment level will be discussed later and the required containment level will be introduced when we discuss the
1: objectives the safety barrier system. General size detail, details
3: also need to be collected and these include the size and position of hazards, road and roadside cross section, accesses to properties and intersections, poles and drainage installations, traffic volume and traffic mix, operating speed of the road, nature and strength of soil, and the potential for flooding. These these include factors that affect the type of the barrier selected and constraints on its location and installation design. Generally, a safety barrier is installed to shield hazards while protecting road users. A safety barrier may also be required to shield high-consequence infrastructure and high-consequence land. We need to clearly define our road users and to some extent, the design vehicle. On high volume roads, the objective might be to redirect heavy vehicles. This should have been previously decided when defining the required containment level for the route. Otherwise, it will be decided in the next step. While we can protect motorcyclists to some extent, we need to decide if effective motorcycle protection can be provided. Road agencies have different policies on installing motorcycle protection systems, depending on the road type, the traffic flow, and the type of barrier installed. This often results from the questions to the, to the following. This, this often results from the answers to the following questions: If the barriers are specifically grouped by to protect motorcycles and other vulnerable road users, is a barrier needed to protect high consequence infrastructure? Is it to be a continuous barrier or can the barriers be installed to shield isolated hazards? It's also useful to document what the barrier is not required to achieve and why. In doing so, you might become more aware of the barriers required attributes. Define required containment level. If the containment level has not been provided, then you need to consider design vehicles to be contained by the road safety barrier, the design traffic flow, the portion and number of heavy vehicles, the operating speed and speed environment, the roads cross section, position of bridge piers, gantries and so on, adjacent land use, and the possibility and consequences if the if the barrier is
1: breached or penetrated. Step 3. Define the required containment level.
3: Typically we would start with a TL3 containment level, one that will redirect passenger cars, utilities and SUVs with a mass up to 2270 kilograms. This is a Dodge Ram. It may be that a TL2 containment level is considered. At library sites, the use of a TL2 containment level must be justified. This figure also demonstrates that a TL4 or TL5 containment level could be used, depending on the number of proportion of heavy vehicles. It was first thought that a limiting position could be given, but later in the development of part six, it was decided to leave the position to a road agency. Often a TL5 system will be used to protect high-constant swing. A TL4 system to redirect a 10-ton truck and a TL, will redirect a 10 tonne truck and a TL5 system will redirect a 36 tonne articulated van type vehicle. If you decide to use a TL4 or a TL5 containment level then the risk assessment is required. Typically this is the consequences of the barrier being, re- being breached. Road OGs have standard designs for TL4 and TL5 concrete barriers. However a bassoak barrier with a higher containment level might be required. And this should be designed in accordance with the selected performance level and bridge codes. That's the Australian Standard, AS5100 and the New Zealand Bridge Manual. The containment level at high uh, risk sites may require a higher containment level than is specified along the route. So you have these two containment levels, which you have to keep in mind, a route containment level and a site containment level. Step four is to identify barriers that meet the objectives and containment level. The test level of a barrier must meet or exceed the required containment level. Only barrier systems accepted by a jurisdiction can be installed. Other considerations include working with, site conditions, maintenance, workplace health and safety, inventory, aesthetics, life cycle costs. Often there'll be only one or two options. Note that we're not choosing a
1: particular product here but the type of a barrier system. Moving to the preliminary design stage. The preliminary design stage involves steps five to eight and some pertinent questions. We'll now discuss each of these in turn.
3: Step five, select a barrier system. Barrier systems must meet the objectives and containment level that were identified in step four. There may be more than one option and you will need to choose one. It could be the choice between a wire rope barrier and a flexible W-beam system. Again, there's no need to be specific at that stage and we'll be working with generalized values. The detailed, detailed design will be more specific. The guide is preliminary Design working widths, which are one of the most important attributes. Define the working widths. The guide provides working widths for flexible W beam, dry beam, and wire rope barriers, and for TL3 and TL4 systems. The Victorian Department of Transport reviewed full scale tests and identified the working widths for different systems. The values for wire rope barriers were large. And was the same for both TL3 and TL4 systems. The working width for wire rope barriers depends on a number of factors, including the rope tension, post spacing, and installation length. It is recommended that these the conservative values be used in the preliminary design. The working width values will be refined in the detailed design stage. Step 5. Define the working width for concrete barriers. The working width of a concrete barrier is dependent on its height. Taller barriers have a reduced working width. The TL3 impact involves a 20 to 70 kilogram Dodge Ram impacting the barrier. The vehicle does not protrude beyond the rear of the barrier and the working width is essentially the width of the barrier itself. The TL4 and TL5 barriers the working width has been evaluated from false guard tests. The definition of working width is slightly different in this guide to that used in the US. Here, we measure the working width from the furthest element of the barrier system on the traffic side, to the furthest lateral movement of the the barrier or the vehicle on the other side. We discussed this in the first webinar. We've also factored the working width to account for vehicles being 4.6 metres high and not the height of the test vehicle. If a narrow working width is required then a barrier that is 1370 millimetres high or taller should be used. The barrier heights listed in this table are the test barrier heights. For your specifications and standard drawings, you might choose to use a slightly higher barrier heights that more convenient. <laughs> Step six, define the constraints on a barrier's lateral position. The first restraint is the offset from the traffic lane. There are fewer impacts with a barrier located further from the road and a barrier further from the road will have fewer nuisance hits. The offset should allow for a disabled vehicle to be parked off the traffic lane and for the doors to be open. It should also allow for maintenance vehicles to be positioned off the traffic lane. On urban roads, the lateral position of the barrier is dependent on whether there's a parking lane, bicycle lane or bus lane nearby. Table five in this slide is from part six and lists the desirable and minimum offsets from the traffic lane for different road types under normal design domain. Note that this is different to the minimum shoulder width which is documented in part three. The offset of barrier should be relatively consistent to create a more uniform view of the road. Barrier offsets greater than six metres should be avoided. They're limited to emergency stopping bays or maintenance accesses and the like. The guide recommends that the minimum offset be 0.5 metres,
1: 500 millimetres on rural roads and 0.3 metres on urban roads. Step six.
3: Define the minimum distance from hazards. This is simply the barriers working width. Step six, minimum distance from the embankment hinge point. The distance from the embankment hinge point is based on the preliminary design working width. Note that the ground both in front and behind the barrier system needs to be relatively flat. A maximum slope of six point Of 10 to 1 is recommended. For W beam and 3 beam barriers, the minimum distance between the barrier and the hinge point must be greater than 1 meter. This is to allow for the barrier system to be maintained, for people to get behind the barrier and maintain it, and for the ground to provide sufficient support for the posts. Offset of the barrier from curves. There are two installation possibilities when installing a barrier near a curb. The first is to place the barrier as close as possible to the rear of the curb. Desirably, this should be 200 millimeters from the face of the curb, as shown in the upper diagrams. The second is to install a barrier some distance from the curb. This is shown in the lower diagram. This allows for the vehicle's vertical movement to stabilize and for the vehicle barrier interaction to be effective. We discussed this in the first webinar. Minimum offset from the curve. These minimum offsets are listed in this slide. Values are from the literature and from the discussion included in the associated research report. The stiffer W beam barriers listed here are not a legacy non-proprietary barriers. They should not normally be installed now. Note that the barrier should be placed behind Uh, should not be placed behind barrier curbs on high-speed roads. You'll also note that the minimum offset for wire rope barriers and flexible W beam barriers are the same. This is a conservative position. There is, however, evidence that the flexible W beam systems are less affected by the offset from the curb. This would indicate that it's preferable to use a flexible W beam barrier behind the curb rather than the wire rope barrier system.
1: However, there may be some reasons to use a wire rope system. Barriers and medians. Unlike other guides, part six does not specify the minimum
3: width of medians that do not need a barrier. Part six indicates that barriers are required on all high-speed divided roads, regardless of the traffic volume. There have been evidence to show that air vehicles can travel some distance from the edge of the traffic lane Nearly every median without a barrier will have a risk of head-ons. The recommended risk assessment process to justify a median barrier follows the same process process that was used for verges. Often the decision is then to use a single central barrier or two barriers. A central barrier maximizes the site distance and will have fewer nuisance hits. It may have lower cost, and debris is less likely to encroach onto the carriageway. But unfortunately, it might be more likely to be projected into the opposing traffic lanes. However, the important point is that the barrier's performance must not be downgraded. The barrier must must not be placed in saturated soils. The strengths of soils must meet the requirements of the soil in the test. If only one barrier is used, the medium must be traversable and reasonably flat. Better options is to use two
1: barriers. This also helps to provide for safer maintenance of the median. Barriers in narrow medians.
3: It is preferable for the barrier's deflection to be contained in the median. This table gives the median width for normal design and extended design domains. Median widths less than 2.2 metres. Should be considered to be design exceptions. Barriers have been installed in narrow medians, those less than 2.2 metres. However, it is wise to consider the risks each time you make it, you install such a barrier. Rather than consider the narrower widths as the norm, design exception reports should contain the traffic operations, the barrier performance, including containment level, possible end treatments the road geometry, likely impact rates,
1: and the small risk of vehicles being arrested in the opposing line. Flaring of barriers and terminals. The concept of the line has been discontinued.
3: The, the more recent evidence is that drivers do not shy away from barriers. Flaring of barriers effectively increases the, the likely impact angles, And such is undesirable. Table 6.9 in part 6 lists the flare rates based on the operating speed of a road. This table is the flare rates for barriers close to the road and those further away. A higher or more gradual flare rate is used for barriers close to the road. Maximum flare rates for concrete barriers is lower or more gradual than for other barriers. This is because the performance of stiff concrete barriers is more influenced by impact angles. However, flaring a barrier increases the coverages of a barrier, and this is particularly useful for continuous barriers. A flared barrier may
1: require additional earthworks. We will discuss flared barriers, a flared terminal shortly. Step seven, determine the longitudinal location of a barrier. The longitudinal location
3: of barriers based on the length of need. In Part 6, the length of need is calculated used to two concepts: the runout length and the angle of departure. The concept of the runout length has been the usual way of estimating the required length of need. It is based on the distance for a vehicle to stop in the roadside. Part 6 uses current ASHTO roadside design guide processes and run out of length values. The values are slightly shorter than those in the previous editions of Path 6. Another technique has been to use the angle of departure method, which was described in an appendix of the previous edition, and is commonly used in New South Wales. It is based on the likely angles of departure for errant vehicles. It acknowledges that some vehicles drift off the road, particularly with cruise control, and would continue at the same shallow angle. The process in part six is to calculate the length of need using the runout length method and then to calculate if the corresponding departure angle is greater than the 15th percentile angle of 17 degrees. The process defines the leading and trailing points of need, giving the length of need. Note that the length
1: of need is a property of the site and not of the barrier. Step seven,
3: we step seven again, determine the location of the barrier on a one-way carriageway. The trailing point of need for one-way carriageways is based on the 85th percentile and departure angle of 22 degrees. The Z measurement is calculated using formulas in the guide. The location of hazards and the trailing angle of departure defines a critical vehicle departure path then allows us to determine the trailing point of trouble or trailing point of need. The length of need for streams. The calculation of length of need is based on the furthest point the hazard is from the road. Where there is a stream or similar long hazard, it's not clear what distance you should use. Some agencies have used 10 metres, but the hazard may extend much further than this. Looking at the calculation process using the round length, the leading and trailing points of need would be approximately the runout length from the hazard measured along the road. However, research by Resinger and others has demonstrated that the length of need values are underestimated at longer offsets by a factor of two. This gives the recommended values shown in this figure. Evaluate the selected barrier. In this step, we ask the questions. Does the selected barrier fit the roadside or medium? And can the roadside geometry be changed? If the answer is no to both questions, you should select an alternative barrier and redo the preliminary design.
1: We now move to the detailed design stage. This stage starts with two
3: fundamental questions. Are the soil characteristics able to provide sufficient support and strength to the posts and foundations we'll discuss this in the next webinar in the next slide in this variant of the chosen barrier type is there a variant of the chosen barrier type that may be able to provide the required lateral support if the answer is no to both questions select an alternative barrier and redo the preliminary design otherwise there are five stages it's five steps in the stage. Step nine is to evaluate the soil strength. Barriers require the foundations and posts to resist the impact loads. Performance of barriers function the soil strength. In fact, the soil strength should not be too strong as the barriers may yield a grade rather than causing the ground to give a little. The soil cannot be too weak, causing the posts to fail too early. To achieve the same performance observed in the testing, the soil at the installation site should be as strong as a YASHTA standard soil. That's a well-compacted granular soil with a CBR, California Bearing Ratio, of approximately 60. This was discussed in the first webinar. If the soil strength is too weak, use a different barrier or vary the same barrier. A ground beam might also be possible, depending on the system, ground conditions. See the guide for some further details. This This of course requires the installation designer
1: to know the soil strength of the site. And I wonder, do you think this happens now? Structural design of the barrier and foundations. Proprietary safety barrier systems should
3: not be redesigned or compromised. This includes the foundations. The technical conditions of use describe the foundations or soil conditions, and these must be observed. The only thing an installation designer can do is to use an accepted variant of the system. Only accepted barrier systems or accepted variants are to be used. However, in in some circumstances, a structural design is required for concrete barriers, their anchorages and then terminating sections. For these concrete barriers, the containment level is defined by the performance level and the barriers designed in
1: accordance with bridge manuals. Detailed installation refinements. This step can,
3: contains a number of refinements to design. The first is the modification of the working width. The guide lists factors for length and curve radii for wire rope barriers. One option tried in Victoria is to use weight protection, which allows higher vehicles to lean on the barrier and so
1: reduce the roll. This reduces the working width. Design minimum length of barrier.
3: The redirective section of the barrier needs to extend beyond the length of need. Being the required barrier length, the shield has it. And the length of need is shown by the red bar. The redirective section of the barrier between the points of redirection is shown by the green bar. The point of redirection for the adjacent traffic needs to be upstream of the leading point of need and the approach point of redirection for the opposing direction should be downstream of the trailing
1: point of redirection. The redirective section of a barrier must cover the length of need. The design
3: minimum length of a barrier is when the length of the redirective section
1: is equal to the length of need. Design minimum lengths include the terminals. Other installation requirements. Maximum barrier lengths are described in the guide.
3: The recommended maximum length of a wire rope barrier is one kilometer, although it is possible to have lengths up to two kilometers. The length of W beam and concrete barriers are not limited, but are affected by the need for accesses. You should check the site distance requirements,
1: knowing it's not possible to see through a line of posts. Select end treatments. Terminals
3: are an integral part of a barrier system. Some systems may be one acceptable terminal. A terminal and longitudinal barrier are usually matched. You should only use terminals accepted by jurisdiction. Terminals should be installed in accordance with manufacturer's requirements and on relatively flat ground, preferably flatter than 10 to one. There are similar requirements for installing crash cushions. Terminals designed to be installed in, in, in a flare must be installed on the appropriate, with the appropriate flare.
1: Terminals designed to be installed on the straight alignment must not be flared. Runout areas for terminals and crash cushions. Both terminals and crash cushions need appropriate runout
3: lengths. For terminals, these are measured from the approach point of redirection. Here, it is shown partway along the terminal. In other cases, the approach point of redirection may be the interface between the the longitudinal barrier and the terminal. Runout area for crash cushions has different dimensions due to the vehicle spinning after impact.
1: The dimensions shown here are based on full scale tests on a number of different systems. Transitions and Overlaps. A transition or an overlap is used when two different barrier
3: systems meet. Transitions physically can connect the two barrier systems together. This table indicates that a concrete barrier and W beam barriers can be connected with a transition. A transition will generally be required to manage the difference in stiffness of the two systems, but may also be required to manage the difference in height of the two systems.
1: If barriers are overlapped, they're not physically connected. Overlaps, in overlaps, there are two barriers. One barrier ends and the other commences
3: with impacts on the leading trailing, leading terminal projected by the trailing terminal. The commencing barrier is typically behind the other barrier and is flared to have the appropriate offset downstream. It's also possible to flare the ending barrier to be closer to the road, and for the commencing barrier to have a straight alignment. The solution depends on the space available and the offsets used in the installation of both barrier systems. The ending terminal has a departure point of redirection, which is upstream of its trailing terminal. The commencing barrier has an approach point of redirection nearest leading terminal. The two barriers are arranged so the departure point of redirection is aligned with the approach point of redirection of the other barrier. You can see that on the diagram. The barriers are separated by the dynamic deflection, the wire rope barrier in this case. For most situations, the working
1: width can be used as a dynamic deflection. Step 13, guides for barriers to
3: meet specific requirements. The topics in this step include access through barriers, continuous barriers, vulnerable road users, two-stage shielding, barriers across drainage structures, protecting critical infrastructure close to barriers, fauna crossings, installation of concrete barriers on this road roads and step mediums, aesthetic road safety barriers, We'll
1: not discuss all issues here, but you can read about them in the guide and you can see extra material in the research report. Access through barriers. Access through barriers are required for
3: road and construction maintenance and for emergency vehicles. The preferred locations are on SAGs or straights where site distance is greatest, away from divergent merge points. Not on the outside of curves at lower risk areas. For emergency services, and access is desirably located at 500 metre intervals. However, access should not be more than 1,000 metres apart. Accesses should be three
1: and a half metres wide to allow maintenance vehicles to enter and exit. Stated median openings. An opening in a barrier provides an additional risk to errant
3: vehicles. This is often unavoidable, but the risk should be acknowledged and the location of openings optimised to reduce the risk. This figure shows uh, staggered openings. There are two critical errant vehicle paths passing through the points of redirection. These are shown by the red arrows. Between these two critical errant paths, a vehicle will collide with the barrier for the other carriageway. It is, rem- it is recommended that a symmetrical barrier that allows for impacts on both sides be used or alternatively a section of back-to-back
1: barrier in the areas shown here. Risk associated with openings and two median
3: barriers. This is a simple, similar example except there's an opening in both median barriers. The arrangement would typically allow for enforcement vehicles to be able to do a U-turn. However, there is an area between the departure point of redirection and the approach point of redirection where errand vehicles may be able to pass through to the opposing carriageway. Again, this risk should be considered. A possible solution is to allow for emergency vehicles to be able to do a U-turn
1: within the median, so the two openings, don't have to be aligned. Continuous barriers. Barriers should be as long as possible. as should start at the
3: earliest location and extend as far as, as practical. Designers should consider removing hazards that are not adequately shielded by the barrier, relocating hazards to ensure they, they can be adequately shielded by a barrier, Using point protection systems or crash cushions for single hazards. Provide run out areas for terminals and crash cushions. Design effective opening with minimal risk of errant vehicles. The aim is not to change barrier type more frequently than one to every five kilometres or about
1: three minutes of travel. Emergency stopping bays should be provided at least one to four kilometres. The need for two-stage shielding. Two-stage shielding
3: uses a flexible barrier system to redirect smaller, lighter vehicles. It could have a TL3 or a TL4 containment level. A concurrent barrier with a higher containment level is constructed behind. The port or the infrastructure element that needs to be shielded is then protected against impacts by both heavy vehicles and lighter vehicles. The use of two barriers allowed a lot of vehicles to be redirected with lesser forces on the occupants. The length of need for cars is based on the basic method described in part six. The leading point of redirection for the wide rope barrier is shown here. The location for
1: the redirected part of a concrete barrier is based on a departure angle for trucks of 15 degrees. Step 14, develop a plan to
3: maintain a barrier. This is the last step of the detailed design stage, but it's not the least important. The safety of workers to repair and maintain a safety barrier is paramount. When designing an installation, the safety of workers must be considered. It's essential. It's essential. It is, if it's practical, design should be modified to improve the ability for it to be maintained. The plan to maintain a barrier should describe the barriers maintenance
1: regime and maintenance practices. We now move to the documentation stage.
3: This stage has two very important steps. Confirm that the barrier meets requirements and objectives. This is a prudent act in design to confirm that design meets the objectives. If the barrier does not meet the objectives of the installation, the choice of the barrier might need to be changed. Otherwise, objectives may need to be modified. In any case, decision needs to be documented. Documentation through design drawings. Design drawings should be drawn to scale to identify any inconsistencies and issues with installation or with other services. They should contain details about the existing
1: hazards and other features together with proposed barrier. Documentation and design report. Design
3: report should document and justify the proposed design. This should, should demonstrate that the installation conforms to the system owner's specifications that the barrier is installed to the, to the system owner's requirements. It should document the relative design decisions design report is fundamental to good practice. Finally, I'd like to recommend that if you missed the first webinar, that you look at the discussion on the Ausroad Safety, Hardware, Training and Accreditation Scheme or
1: AASHTASH. It's coming into in the practice shortly and it's worth reviewing. And with that, I thank you for listening. Thanks for, thanks for that Rod. Um, we've got a number of questions to get through. We'll see how many we, we get
2: through. The, the ones we can't address at this will certainly follow up um, after our, after the webinar so we'll get ultimately a consolidated list of questions and, and answers. Um, you might start off with've got a couple around slides 36 and 37.
1: if we can go to those. And the one for 30, slide
2: 36, um, And I apologise, I missed it, but it says here you mentioned 17 degrees, our slide shows 7 degrees, double checking which one is correct. So probably need to yeah. tidy that up, 7, yeah. Josh, yeah, it's correct. And slide 37 is a question on, is there a consideration of departure angle for a vehicle yawing and departing a carriageway?
1: Um, I'm sorry I missed that, that, uh, that I can't see that question on the question on the
2: board here yeah um, no,
1: it's,
2: it's sorry weird. get back to it it's on slide 37 yep and the question is is there a consideration of departure angle for a vehicle yawing and departing the carriageway
3: no it's taken from the angles of departure which were recorded in uh, some... We use the Australian data from Australia, and we also use data from uh, uh, from America, which the two sets of data coincided, and it's the angle of departure on the road. So
1: it's the angle of the centre of the sort of vehicle departing from the road. Thanks, Rob. Um, on slide 30, go to that
2: one. It's a fairly long question. Um, Nominates offsetting a barrier at a minimum distance equivalent to the working width from a hinge point. Um, it's seemingly mis- misconceived. If there is no above ground hazard, then the working width has no relevance and the minimum distance to the hinge point would be the dynamic deflection not working width. I guess before you answer that question, I guess at that point of the design process, we don't necessarily know which barrier system is being adopted. so.
3: Um the we've used working width rather than deflection all the way through because we wanted to make sure that we concentrated on working width. You could you could say that it's deflection, but for most systems, TL three, TL4 systems, or certainly TL3 systems, there's very little lean on the global post so that uh, or, or the system so the deflection the the, the Dynamic deflection and working with it very much the same. For other th- other situations, you could have used deflection, but as I said, we've concentrated on working with it, and it's particularly important for concrete. Um, we haven't specified the type of barrier here, and so uh, let's make it generic.
2: Yep. um just a really quick question to follow up the long question um can you elaborate on a point protection system
3: um a couple of a crash cushion is a point protection system but there are other other protection systems particularly for lower um, containment levels um it's basically a system that that uh, doesn't involve a um, barrier it just involves the
1: the, the crash cushion it might be two questions in fact. Yeah,
2: um, no, a few questions have just come in very suddenly.
1: Someone... I on the
2: one I remarked. Sorry. Um, About, I guess, soil conditions. If soil is too weak, should there be an option to bring in replacement material? I guess the easy answer to that is there are options. and then we've built barrier systems in fill fill conditions. So whether or not that's economically viable is is a call for the the designer and the project team, I guess.
3: Well, the the issue centres around the, the barrier performance. And the barrier performs as well as the soil strength allows and when you do a test the test often relates to the soil strength so you would get a different outcome from the test depending on the soil strength but that also means that when you have an installation you want to make sure that the soil is strong as what was used in the test and I guess it's been a, a an issue for ASBAP or discussed in ASBAP that people are not, as long are not taking notice of where they're installing safety barriers. And if you pull a safety barrier in, in the soft ground, it needs, it won't have the same soil strength as in it. It may not perform in the same, same
1: way. So that's, that's the reason for the wall it's all strength. And yeah, the
2: next question is, where does the one minimum minimum width to the hinge for W beams come from? Sometimes in construction, the offset to the hinge is less than one metre offset. And often the contractor asks if the slightly reduction a slight reduction of offset is acceptable. Yeah. Can it be acceptable? Well,
3: well, it was discussed at ASBAP, and in fact, there's a technical note, an ASBAP technical note on the issue, and basically said we would like to see a knee behind the barrier as I said in the seminar, webinar, to make sure that the posts can um, support the loads. But secondly, to make sure that it can be maintained. Because you could could reasonably say, well, we're somewhat less than that, but it becomes difficult to
1: maintain a circuit, particularly a post and and, um, rail system. I mean I've had
2: another one here about considering barrier offsets from the hinge point that are less than the working width of the system, such as E D D or D design exception elements. Um, yeah. I guess any, any consideration of that would have to involve some degree of risk assessment around Mm-mm. possible That's outcomes. Right.
1: That's right. I oh, agree.
2: Um continue, there's one on continuous barriers on slide fifty five uh, what's your advice about running continuous barriers through cuttings adjacent to cut Are you two
1: to one cut slopes uh, on cuts
3: sorry I'm not sure I've got the question. I can put the question here of yeah. me
2: yeah just you should have it now that's running a continuous barrier system where you're going from indoor cut situation with a cut of two to one um it's a continuous barrier system you'd generally be incorporating that into the design i would have thought
1: I
3: don't, yeah exactly um what is your advice about, about running continuous barriers through cuttings uh, you you've got to be careful that the cutting operates effectively you know you feel you know, on a fuel you say put in a barrier when you get to a cat would you continue you need to continue the barrier i don't know that's quite what the question but in my mind it is just a, a it's a continuous barrier it should consider the cut barriers as required with the tension as well and so therefore continues the barrier through the cuts.
2: Yeah. Another soil strength one. Does soil strength play much part when installing wire rope barriers? Um, understands no. that the majority of the work is done by the wire rope and, the anchor, and, and anchors rather than posts.
3: Well it's still tested in, in a in a condition that, that is, um, um, with a certain chore strength. To start, to start the, the, the state, yes, it, it doesn't, it, is it affected by the other, by the, the posts? Rather than say that it seems to have most of the work done by the anchors and the wire rope. If, if it didn't have posts, and the posts were very weak, then it wouldn't perform as well. In fact, it, it's been tried to use rubber posts and, you know, for that sort of situation. For, demonstrate that the posts do, do do some work in all the system
1: thanks rob
2: and um, what about errant vehicle departure angle shown on the guidelines makes a lot of sense on straight horizontal alignments but on horizontal curves the length of need is significantly reduced or lengthened based on whether we are looking at yeah. barriers areas on the inside or outside of the curve so any further guidance on that
1: um, that's
3: quite difficult because it's, um, it was, a lot of it was based on straight alignments and the advice was, was centred around straight alignments. For curved alignments, I think it need to be, you um, uh, need to be careful, we've tried to make sure that in, in one of the units that we've covered curved alignments and it needs give you guidance on how you calculate that on the departure angle you would use. But again, it's still based on the twenty-two degrees from the tangent of the of the people's Um,
2: slide thirty has got a question about I'll just send it through, sorry, right? Um, about barriers that have been tested on and down the batter, two to one slopes and the like. Has bar- got a position on those, I guess.
3: Well, I mean, if it's if you've got a barrier that um, um, is being tested on the side of an um, embankment, that's up to, that um, could be a variant that might be acceptable and, and evaluated by ASPAP and then acceptable to the jurisdiction. Then the decision to use it would be based on the. What we're trying to suggest here or recommend here is that, first of all, that we look like we're working with and um, rather than anything else. And secondly, what we're looking for is to try and make sure that the barrier can be. Important. Now, that's when you put it down on the magnet slope, then that becomes more problematic.
2: Um, some of the questions we've got, we will, we'll spend some time on responding to a fairly long sides so of the. Bit- To work through them here is I don't think we've got sufficient time and apologise for that. Um, Just seeing if we've got some that we can answer within the time of our war. Just one last one, I guess. Um, on slide 27, is there a considered approach to design for working widths of vehicles higher than 4.6 metres? Um, are we determining design clearance behind barriers to bridge piles where tall vehicles are to be considered?
1: Well,
3: 4.6 metres is a pretty high built vehicle. You're going to be very, very, very,
2: yeah. very designing something, well, designing for a barrier system for a higher vehicle on that.
3: Well, the other part about it, is if you thought you had uh, um, uh, higher vehicles or, or a more difficult situation, then why not give a um, an extra width over and above these, these design working widths? So, you know, I don't think, I think you, you ought to treat them as being the preliminary design working width. You should treat the, the information when you come to the detailed design, and so we think we've got much higher vehicles at 4.6 meters high. We should allow for a greater working width. You should say these are design working widths. Do you just want to have the design working width, or do you want to have a? So I think we, I think the guide we talk about uh, factor of safety on these two. So I would
2: um, suggest you. Uh, Yep, and at that we might draw a line under the questions. And as I said, we'll certainly work on the rest of the questions and respond to them after the after the webinar. If we can hand it back to Ekaterina, that would be great.
0: Thank you very much Richard and Rod and thanks everybody uh, for being with us. Uh, Just a couple of last slides, Um, our future webinars, we have four sessions coming up. Um, So we will talk um, about waste material in road surfacings, sustainability in road tunnels, Um, updates to Standard Australia for bitumen and related materials, um, and uh, multi-modal incident management. So if you're interested in any of these sessions, please visit our website and register. Uh, And as usual, uh, when we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire. Please fill it out. Let us know what you think about the session. It helps us to know um what you like to didn't like uh, and plan our future sessions and once again uh today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's available on our website thanks again everyone stay well uh, and safe and enjoy the rest of your day we'll see you next time